Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. I have a pressure at my parish, which is Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish in Homer Glen, Illinois. A lot of people ask me, where is Homer Glen? Well, it's best way I can describe it. It's 30 miles south of downtown Chicago. How's that? Everybody knows Chicago. So if you come to the Chicago area and go 30 miles south, you'll come to my parish in Homer Glen. I have a parishioner there. His name is Luke very appropriate name because Luke is a real lover of the scriptures, of the Bible. One of the reasons is because Luke came from a Protestant tradition. And of course, we all know how Protestant denominations really love and revere the Bible. And also in knowing the Bible and reading the Bible and quoting the Bible. But Luke is a Byzantine Catholic now, but he brings with him that gift, those riches of what was his Protestant tradition in terms of the scripture. And he's always urging me to speak about the Scripture. He helps to facilitate our adult Bible study at our Church of Annunciation. And he asked me if I could speak about it on the radio program. And I said, well, that's a great idea. So today we're going to look at the Bible, especially from the standpoint of the Eastern Christian churches. First of all, we have to ask the question, why do we have to be urged to read the Bible? Why do we not read it as Catholics, whether Eastern or Western, and even Orthodox Christians as well? Reading the Bible seems to be what is most known among Protestant denominations. However, there are, of course, many Catholics and Orthodox who do, in fact, read the Bible, but many do not. Most do not. They do not read it as they should read it, as my parishioner Luke always laments. The reason is, I think, actually has a twofold nature to it. There's a positive, but there's a negative that came out of that positive. The positive, and this helps to point to how we use the Bible, not just read it, but use it in the Byzantine church, the Eastern churches, and actually in the Latin Rite church as well, but more so in the Eastern churches. We use it in such a way that we put it largely in the context of liturgy. Now, when I say liturgy, I mean architecture, art, and the actual ritual, the actual services. 
Now, we don't put it just exclusively there. The Bible just isn't there, but it is largely, in a very comprehensive way, there. So when we attend liturgy, an Eastern Catholic in particular, an Orthodox Christian, and certainly to a large extent a Latin Rite Catholic as well, has the experience, although they're not always conscious of it, they have the experience of walking into the Bible, of breathing the Bible, tasting the Bible. Let's face it, there's candles, there's incense, there's tabernacle, there's the Eucharistic banquet. All these things, as I mentioned them, should be very reminiscent to you of things in the Old Testament, because, of course, you are all reading your Bibles, right? (laughs) So what happens in the liturgy of the church, both East and West, there is an immersion in the Bible because it surrounds us. It's what we're thinking, smelling, tasting, saying, proclaiming, hearing. And there's extensions of that through the sacramental life of the church, through its devotional life. And I think from this, which is a positive, of course, to immerse ourselves in the Bible in this way, to be surrounded by it, to be taken up into its reality through the liturgy of the church, this, of course, is a positive, but I think it does give rise to the fact that we Catholics, Orthodox Christians, and by Catholics I mean East or West, we do not actually read the Bible as much as we ought to, at least as individual people. And even as clergy, we don't actually read it as much as we should. And I think it's because we have the sense of just overall knowing it or experiencing it. Not that Catholics are as good as Protestants for the most part at quoting chapter and verse, but they have a deep sense of what the Bible is drawing us into, what its message is, what it's about. I once had a professor in the seminary who said that the Bible does not always mean what it says, but it always means what it means. I know it's kind of a brain teaser. What he meant by that, if you've studied any kind of Bible at all, any Bible studies, is that the Bible, let's face it, doesn't always mean explicitly what it says because it speaks in metaphor and symbols and poetry and so on, but it always means what it means. In other words, there's always a fundamental message to it. And that fundamental message or purpose of all the Scripture is what is communicated in the life of the church, in its sacramental life, in the art, the architecture, and the liturgy. And so, again, there's a sense to rely on that and not so much on actually reading the Bible. The second thing is, and this goes back through some history, is that since the Bible does need to be interpreted or presented through an authoritative voice, because if people read the Bible, they can often interpret it according to their own personal interpretation. That can be good, but can also be troublesome. So there has to be an authority. Another authority is the church. Now, in the Catholic Church, at one point, they almost discouraged people from reading the Bible, not because they didn't want them to know the Bible, actually the opposite. They wanted them to know it correctly. So they would say, well, listen, we'll tell you what the Bible says. Don't go reading it on your own, because we'll tell you what it actually means. We want you to know the Bible, but you've got to know it as we teach it to you. Also, there was a reaction to the Catholic Church towards Protestantism, which said that you only need the Bible and nothing else. That's part of how Protestants became very, very devoted to the reading of Scripture and the quoting of Scripture. But the Catholic Church reacted to that. It didn't want its people to be caught up in that notion because it's actually an incomplete notion. As important as the Scripture is, what we believe in is not just in the Scripture. It is there explicitly or implicitly, but it's also in the tradition of the Church. There are things that we believe and do that were not explicit in the Bible, but yet we do them because this is what the Church has done since the beginning. It's what it has passed down to us from the beginning. So 
in a Catholic and Orthodox churches, we approach our faith through two fundamental avenues, tradition and the scriptures, but they don't contradict each other. They're implicit in one another or explicit. They work hand in hand. They become one and the same, but they complete each other. So there was reasons why the church, in a sense, discouraged people from actually reading the Bible, not from knowing the Bible. There's a big difference. The church wanted the people to know the Bible, and so ironically, they sometimes, not directly, but implicitly discouraged Catholics from reading it, at least reading it on their own. They didn't want them to get the wrong understanding of it. And as I said, it was a reaction to Protestantism. However, the church, especially after the Second Vatican Council, the church, East and West, has encouraged a renewal of Scripture. There's been a renewal of Scripture scholarship in the church, East and West, and the church has certainly encouraged people to read the Bible. There are Bible study groups all over the place in most parishes across the world. There are great Scripture scholars that have come forward, even people who are able to make the Scripture understandable and all the scholarship understandable to the common person. There's all kinds of biblical tapes and study guides and so on. So there's been this great proliferation of a renewal of our focus of actually reading and understanding the Scriptures, the Scripture itself, the Bible. Along Father with Loyal our invites you to the see the new Tabor the Life website. That's a little bit of background as to why we haven't read when the Bible as much as we should page, and why you we can see should, how Tabor but Life can how help improve should. your marriage, your life, how and the how to see the beauty of God's churches, created order in your personal life. Well, not radically different than from the Latin Rite traditions, but in some ways it will be approached differently. As well as speak on cultural, social, and Take any liturgical service as a renowned in the artist, church, Father Loya can speak about how most art, everything that we do and say together is really a dramatization you can of see the Bible. many ways of our how actions, you can communicate our words, with us. And the as prayer, you look to the lower right hand corner of the page, are click on the messenger icon right for it's live chat. Trench fathers Taper Life Institute out all kinds of is a 501 organization to make that prayers and liturgy that we support. Click on the image at the top of the page and donate. After all, art the architecture is powered in fact, by classic you. church architecture, both East and West, and it's particularly preserved in Eastern churches, is based on the style of the biblical temple. Remember the temple spoken about in, for instance, in the book of Exodus and Ezekiel and Deuteronomy and Leviticus? All those descriptions of how the temple was to be designed and the rules of the temple and the prescriptions for the priest and so on, all of that was actually preserved, but in a new way, in classic Christian church architecture. For example, you had in the scripture the temple that had different zones to it, the Holy of Holies, you know, then, then eventually what we would call the nave and the, the sacristies, the vestibule, the narthex. Well, there were different zones in the Old Testament temple, and so too there were different zones, similar zones, in the classic Christian churches. And again, this is very much preserved in the Eastern churches. There was a separation, especially between the Holy of Holies, which we would call the sanctuary, and the rest of the church. And that separation in the Latin Rite churches was known by a communion rail. In the Eastern churches, it's known as an icon screen, a great wall that separates the sanctuary from the nave. And in the sanctuary of the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle, as it was called in the Old Testament, only the high priest would enter and once a year to offer sin offerings on behalf of himself and the people. In other words, the holiest of reasons and only the one authorized person would enter. 
A similar thing happens in the churches of the East with the icon screen. Only the ordained ministers go into the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, and they pass through the icon screen with its doors and curtains. And this is an extension of the Old Testament temple. So already we are immersing our liturgy in what we read about in the scriptures. So you see a little bit of what I mean, that the approach of the Eastern churches to scripture, it's an immersion into them by way of liturgy. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the Eastern approach to the Bible and why we should read the Bible. I'm Father Thomas Leia on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card with your help. We can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. You are listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East, and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at ByzantineCatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. 60491 and may God grant you Hi, I'm Bishop Earl Boyer for WJKNAM and W227BYFM Good Shepherd Catholic Radio in Jackson, Michigan and you're listening to Light of the East Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. We're talking about reading the Bible, especially in the Eastern churches. But in order to do that, we also want to understand how the Eastern churches use the Bible. And I say that in a good way, how we use it. We just don't read it. We use it. We walk into it. We immerse ourselves into it, which is not an excuse for us not to read it. But back to our use of it, and by that I meant in the liturgy. Let me give you an example. Before the liturgy even begins in the Byzantine church, there's a rite of preparation of the gifts that is done by the priest and deacon. It's done on a separate table, sometimes called an altar, but it's not really an altar. But it's on the side in the sanctuary. And he takes the bread and the wine, the water that will be used in the liturgy to become the body and blood of Christ. And he does some things with it. But when he does things with it, for every action he does, he actually recites a passage from Scripture. For example, he takes the bread, now it's a leaven bread, he's going to cut it and actually pierce it. And he'll say, like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep without blemish that is silent before the shearer, he opened not his mouth. Now that comes from Isaiah 53, 7. In his humiliation, judgment was taken against him. There's Isaiah 53, verse 8. 
Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And then the priest, after having cut that, he will then cut a cross form into the bread on one side of the bread, and he'll say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is being offered for the life and salvation of the world. John chapter 1. Then he actually begins to take the other particles of the bread. Remember, it's 11 bread, so it's being cut into pieces, something like croutons, about that size and shape. And he places them on the discos. After he's placed the lamb there that we just spoke about on the discos, he places next to the lamb smaller particles, and he says, In honor and memory of our most blessed lady, the Theotokos, and ever-Virgin Mary, through whose prayers, O Lord, accept this sacrifice upon your heavenly altar. Then he takes a piece of the bread, and he cuts it in the form of a triangle. Now, this would be a different shape than the other shapes of the particles. And he says, The queen stood at your right hand, vested in robes, adorned with gold. That comes from Psalm 44. Then he'll take another piece of bread, cut it, and say, The honorable and heavenly angelic powers. And another one, The honorable and glorious prophet, forerunner, and Baptist John, and all the holy prophets. Another particle, the holy, glorious, illustrious apostles, Peter and Paul, and all the other holy apostles. Then he commemorates several more classifications of saints. And then he'll do this. He'll begin to put then veils over the bread and the chalice. The bread again is on the discos. And he'll say things like this. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Robed as the Lord and girt about with strength. The world he made firm not to be moved. Your throne has stood from of old. You are, O Lord, from all eternity. The rivers have lifted up, O Lord. The rivers have lifted up their voice. The rivers will lift up their waves. Greater than the roar of mighty waters. More glorious than the surges of the sea. The Lord is glorious on high. Your decrees are worthy of trust indeed. Holiness is fitting to your house, O Lord, until the end of time. There we have a quote from Psalm 92. Well, we can go on and on with the rite of preparation, but you get hopefully the idea that for every action, there's a corresponding verse from Scripture that is similar to the action going on, like he talks about the waters covering things and the surges of the water. When the priest says that and quotes that from Scripture, he's covering over the gifts with these veils. So you see, we match the action of the liturgy with the appropriate verse of Scripture. So we're actually walking into Scripture, as I say, or, or immersing ourselves. We're, we're speaking the Scripture. We're living the Scripture. We're becoming the Scripture through the liturgy of the church. And the iconography that surrounds the altar and the people in the church, and it should be iconography from floor to ceiling if it's properly done as an Eastern church, that iconography also conveys the Scripture. We have, for instance, on the ceiling of the church, the mighty Christ Pantocrator, the all-powerful ruler, the largest, most imposing icon in the church, surrounded by the angels in heaven. And what this is, is a reference to Revelations, the last book of the Bible, where we have the heavenly liturgy, the wedding feast of the Lamb, where all the angels and saints surround the Alpha and the Omega, Christ, the Almighty One, the beginning and the end in that ongoing heavenly liturgy, which we hope to all join if we make it to heaven. What's interesting about that image on the ceiling, that dominates the ceiling of an Eastern church, is that it's a use of the book of Revelations, which is actually not read in the Eastern churches, believe it or not. It's not actually read at the liturgy. But quotations from it, imagery is used in the liturgy, in the iconography, in the wording of the prayers of the liturgy, and the whole layout of the church, the overall sense of the church with the incense and the candles and the choirs and so on. Now, there was another use of 
the scriptures in the Eastern tradition, which is very characteristic of the Eastern tradition. And actually, it's one of the things that I enjoy most about our, our liturgy and the way we use scripture. It's called allegorical typology. In other words, in the Eastern churches, we have what's called dogmatic hymns, where we have verses, hymns, that were written by the fathers of the church, many of the saints of the church, the centuries, and they are what we actually say, what we actually sing during the liturgy. And what we're singing are not just hymns, for example, a, a hymn that just is a kind of an embellishment of our faith or, or a sort of a sentimental expression of our faith. I mean, they're okay, they're fine. But when I say hymns, I mean, really, it's theological exposés. It's like we're singing or chanting our theology, what we believe, and everything that we do and say. And a lot of it is allegorical typology. I'll give you one little example. For the feast of the entrance of our Mother of God into the temple, which is coming up in November, one of the verses from the Matins, one of the prayers we say is this, the law prefigured you most wonderfully as a tabernacle, a jar of manna, strange ark, veil of the temple, rod of Aaron, temple never to be destroyed, and gate of God. And so it teaches us to cry to you, Virgin Mother, you are truly high above all. Those verses came from largely from Exodus chapter 26, 16, and 25. Also from Hebrews chapter 10 and Numbers verse 17, first book of Kings chapter 8, and the Gospel of John and the book of Ezekiel chapter 44. Now, can you imagine in that one brief verse, there were all these references to Scripture, because those references were what we call allegories or foreshadowings of the Virgin Mary. They were the presence of the Virgin Mary in the Old Testament in the form of other things that were like her. In other words, there were things that had to do with where God dwelled, where God was present. If God was present in the mother of God in her very womb, so anything in the Old Testament that had the presence of God in it is a prefigurement in the Eastern reckoning of the mother of God. And this happens throughout the Old Testament with both Christ and the mother of God. And this is what we do in the Eastern churches with our use of scripture. We take that imagery from the Old Testament. We see in it the mother of God, the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And it's all over in the Old Testament. And that is how we use scripture in the liturgy in the Eastern churches. This is called allegorical typology. Another way that we use scripture in the liturgy of the church is by chanting. We actually chant our readings. We chant the epistle, we chant the Old Testament, and we chant the gospel. And each Eastern church has its own chant. It's basically a simple chant. But the thing about our chanting, chanting the scripture in the church, is that the cantor or lector who canters ought to be well-trained in this. And sometimes, I have to admit, in Eastern churches, that's not always the case. Sometimes the reading of the Scripture in Eastern church, I have to admit, because I'm a priest and pastor, so I could admit this, <laughs> is almost like halftime at a football game. It's like, well, the people have been singing along, so they're kind of, kind of working a bit. That's what liturgy means, means work of the people. The people get to work, to singing the praises of God. You don't come to sit and watch the show in church. You come to be the show. You show off for God. So we're working hard singing, especially in the Byzantine liturgy. And then comes the epistle reading. And of course, most people sit for the reading. And since they're not actually doing something actively, there's a tendency to not pay so much attention. It's almost like, well, that's the cantor's job. Now he does the reading. But actually, we should pay very close attention. But what would help with that is if the reading is done properly. 
And I don't mean just adhering to the exact chant, the exact pitch or tone of the chant. Yes, the cantor should do that. And it is a rather simple tone, purposely. But what the cantor needs to do is to read in such a way as to be conscious of the acoustics. Yes, the acoustics. Some churches have very lively acoustics, so there's a tendency for the sound to kind of bounce around and not be as clear. Others have maybe not so lively acoustics, so the sound, the words can be lost. The whole point of chanting in the Eastern churches is so that the scripture can be heard. We believe the scripture is very important. So chanting it is a way of making it hopefully louder or more clear. It makes the reader read it more slowly because when you chant something, you read more slowly. So the words hopefully can be heard and absorbed. And secondly, the cantor or lector should look at the readings beforehand and do a little trick I was taught in the seminary. Pick out in each sentence the two words or three words that actually seem to convey the basic meaning of the sentence. And as you're chanting it, make sure you emphasize with a little inflection of a tone or a little more volume those particular words as you're reading through the sentence. And what will happen is you will help the listeners to pick up the meaning or message, not only of the sentences, but of the whole reading. One of the reasons we come to church is to hear these readings and to meditate upon them, to hear homilies and reflections on them. So we must do the readings in a way that is very clear and effective. And I think this is something a lot of Eastern churches need to look at, if I may say so myself. Finally, as we said at the beginning, we should read the scripture, not only in the context of liturgy, but at home and at all times, so that we come to know this scripture and avail ourselves of its great wisdom. So yes, it's not just our Protestant friends who are encouraged to read and quote the scripture. I am encouraging all of you, especially as Eastern Catholics, to learn to read, understand, pray, live, love, and yes, even quote the scriptures. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit byzantinecatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!